You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Acting Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. So in my personal auto safety news, I had to take another five and a half hour drive or something like that, five hour drive. And uh, I, I think I mentioned this happened to me before where I'm doing, you know, I'm in the, the left lane to two lane highway and I'm doing well over the post and speed limit. And people are trying to get into my trunk and then they cut around me on the right, kept right in front of me and slam on the brakes. Uh, for fun or just because they figured, hey, that guy's has three car lengths between him and the next car. That's how I was taught to drive, that three car length buffer. Everyone else is like, hey, three inches is the way to go. Did they stop teaching people how to drive? Or is this, am I just, uh, am I just, you know, the Andy Rooney at the end of a 60 Minutes episode? Yeah, there was. My daughter's got the driving licenses uh, many years ago, and they just mailed them. There was no uh, awe-inspiring driver's test that we used to have. So, uh, I, you know, I don't know what the standard is. And what kind of bumper stickers do you have in your car? <laughs> That's an excellent question. I can't see the back of the car, so I don't, I'm always facing forward. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, wait, what do you mean they mailed them? So in New York State, when I got this, you know, 30 years ago or so, you had to take a five-hour course where you'd sit in a room and, and some guy, you know, you and a bunch of other 16-year-olds watching five hours of films, and there was one guy who was like in his 30s, and you're like, oh, what happened to him? And you're like, oh, that's a DUI. He had to retake the course, and it was five hours of like blood flows on the highway. Uh, but I guess well, I'm had, the only one who paid a, attention. They had a driver's ed course, but you know, uh, back when I took my driver's license test course, we had to dodge the wagon trains at that point. But never mind. We, you know, got in a car with a registry person, and we had to back up the car and do a three-point turn and park it without smashing and, you know, all those kind of fundamental driving things that many of us know how to do and apparently some do not. But they don't do that anymore. They, uh, If you go through driver's ed, they just say, all right, well, you're good enough to go and one day your driver's license appears in the mail, right? I, that's your recent experience, Michael? You know, they, they had, um, in Virginia, they do have a, a driver's test where you go to the DMV and you have to take a, I believe it was about a 20 minute drive. I just did that with my daughter over the summer. So there is a test, there's a written test and a um, actual driving test. Um, but what they're not doing in the driving test is um, training people how to be on time, training people to be patient in traffic. There, there are a lot of, you know, the driving test can only cover some very basic operational skills. It's not, you know, testing how short someone's fuse is before they start driving like a maniac. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's limited in what it can do. A lot of the uh, behaviors you see on the roads are not taking place with the driving instructor in the car, obviously. Yeah, I think it's also patients. partly the same impulse that wants people to strap a six-shooter on their hip. You know, this is something something abroad in the in America today that, that has people very, you know, singularly focused on themselves and to hell with everybody else. I'm not sure where that's coming from exactly, but 
I think perhaps, uh, you know, that's that's part of what you're seeing on the highway as well. You want to find out more about that? <laughs> Listen to our new podcast, Shotgun, Driving with Guns. You're in the driver's seat. Everyone else is a victim. All right. Enough of that silliness. Um, let's go into our, our recall roundup. Recall roundup. I don't know. We'll throw some sort of intro in there. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. Um, here's one for back to school because school's starting again. Thomas built buses, safety liner, HDX. Uh, occupants may collide with the front seat barriers with more force than intended during a crash. Uh, I have a few questions on this. How much force is intended for children to hit their heads? Well, the, the entire um, argument that is used to over the years to, that has prevented school buses from being required on seat belts is that the structure of the bus and the way buses are constructed create this phenomenon called compartmentalization. So uh, under that theory, it's critical that the pad seats and the padding be constructed in a way so that they are protecting occupants from enhanced injuries and collisions. Um, so we do see, and this isn't the first of, of this kind where there may be insufficient padding or um, not meeting a um, safety standard for the um, interior structure of the bus. Um, so it, it happens fairly regularly. Um, in this case, I think Thomas Dilt is, is, seems to be getting ahead of it, but we, we, we'll see. Uh, we, we would, we, you know, we always supported the ideas that seat belts provide an extra measure of protection um, on school buses, particularly in rollover collisions. Um, right now, there's not a lot of protection um, when school buses do roll over, although the, the massive size and weight of a school bus often protects occupants from the worst effects of crashes. All right, so kids, buckle up. I remember when they first put seatbelts in our school bus as a kid, we're all like, what? We don't have to wear this, do we? And they're like, nah, don't worry about it. Yeah, well, New York is one of the few that required it. Um, and also, you know, there's a lot of pushback from school, not only the school financial bean counters who want to not spend on putting seatbelts in school buses, but also from, you know, the kind of the administrator, school bus driver folks who think there's a huge um, discipline problem here. Getting all the kids to buckle up would be a nightmare and getting kids off the bus in emergency might be a nightmare. So there's a lot of competing opinions on the issue. Hmm. All right, next up we have uh, Indian motorcycles. Not sure if they're made in India. Hot coolant may leak on rider and rear tire. Now I like this one because I have a 17-year-old who told us he wants a motorcycle. And I've told him that's a bad idea because then he has to live somewhere else. Does, does he want a motorcycle that he drives on the road around humans and cars or one that he's driving on a track? No, a real road motorcycle because he said, you know, it'll be quicker to get places. Yeah, it'll be a, a, a very heightened chance of being seriously injured or dying. Based on the latest statistic, statistics, at least, motorcycle crashes have been on the rise for years. And with this recent uh, increase in reckless uh, driving by, by folks in cars or the cagers, as they call them, um, we will probably not see that going down um, anytime soon. It's t it seems like an incredibly dangerous time to be riding unprotected on a motorcycle in america 
All right, I'm going to give you his phone number, his email, his Instagram, his TikTok. Hey, you think he's willing to listen to me? <laughs> no, I do not think he will. But, you know, it's something to do. Yeah, I, you know, the best argument I had for him was like, okay, your motorcycle, no, it doesn't have a back seat. So what did, where, where are you and your date going to fool around? Like, you know, that's the only thing that kind of clicked in his head a little bit. Oh. oh. Well, that's actually a poor argument because that's so – you know, because you would then say, well, that's just to get even closer to me than before. So we can share a seat. Mm, yeah, but, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think the, st the statistics are forbidding, though. I think if I remember the numbers right, you are something like 20 times as likely to be seriously injured in a motorcycle accident than you are even in an um, automobile accident at the same speed. So you're, you are incredibly exposed. And having had a bicycle accident at about 10 miles per hour, I, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of pain for that. And, you know, at uh, 30, 60, 90, 120 miles an hour, um, it's even worse. I remember once driving around the Beltway in Washington, and as I was turning onto the Beltway, three motorcycles went past me as I was going about 70 miles an hour um, at about 90, 95 miles an hour. All three of them on one wheel, uh, as the owners had big grins, passing and zigzagging through the cars. So I always think of them, uh, you know, in a sense, gratefully as potential organ donors. So, <laughs> you know, I, I have mixed feelings about the motorcycles that way. <laughs> okay. Well, we pointed out he can't live here if he gets a motorcycle. Uh, all right. Last up in, in recall roundup, Volkswagen. This is uh, one that's upsetting. The front passenger airbag may have been folded incorrectly. Uh, what? I, is this like a parachute? It, it is like a parachute in some ways. I mean, we, we've seen some folding issues over the years. One, the one I remember most were some Nissans in the early 2000s that were folded in such a way that when they deployed, they deployed kind of with the force directed at the occupant's head before they inflated. So they kind of shot the bag out, hit the occupant, and then inflated. And it was causing eye injuries and um, a lot of some blunt force injuries to the face of um, some drivers. So it's really important how airbags are folded. And there's a lot of research and tech that goes into that process that's well beyond my understanding. But once again, as we've mentioned often, there's no federal motor vehicle safety standard that relates to how these uh, airbags are folded. Like other details about the airbag deployment, inflation, um, operation, it's, it's the Wild West. And really the auto companies rely upon or are driven by the case law for how much liability they've got in order to determine such simple things as how to fold the freaking bag for the airbag system. It's once again, an area where there's just no regulation where there, there should be some, some at least minimal level of oversight into how safe these things are and what kind of testing is required to, you know, allow them to be used in a car. Don't you think Michael, I, you know, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. We've talked about this in terms of the inflator chemicals because we've just seen with Takata and now with um, the ARC airbags, we've seen 
the, the potential for problems depending on what chemical you use there. Um, you know, there are, I, I would have to say there are thousands of different types, sizes. I mean, we've got airbags for knees and, and there's so many different types and sizes of airbags um, that it would be very difficult, I think, for NHTSA to regulate all of them. Um, but there could be some minimum performance standards put in place to ensure that, A, that occupants aren't injured by, by airbags that are deploying and be that they're, you know, they're, they're working properly. Um, but that's, you know, I, I think thinking about the future of airbags and the future of cars, I mean, I'm a, this is an area that, you know, airbags are going to be constantly changed and modified in size and shape and power to meet the specifications of upcoming models. So they're, they're always changing to some extent. Um, where we've seen the problems mostly are in the inflator chemicals and things like folding and things like, you know, the, the airbag systems not detecting crashes sufficiently to deploy the airbags. Um, so th those are some of the areas where we think there, there may, it may be right for some um, standards, some minimum performance standards to ensure that they're operating safely. So when NHTSA crash tests cars, I mean, obviously front end co collision, the airbag goes off. They have the, the dummies. I know that's not the correct word to call those things. Uh, they get hit in the face with an airbag. I imagine there's sensors there that show, hey, they just got shot in the head with a bullet, and then it unfolded to a beautiful flower. Uh, are they not yeah. looking at that? They're not well, testing everything. So there's, they're not testing every car. So the odds of them detecting that in a crash test, you know, they may not have a sensor in that specific location on the dummy. There, there could be any number of reasons why that wouldn't come up in a NHTSA test. Um, you know, in the manufacturer's testing, it's another question, you know, how much testing did they do? You know, I, I can't recall all the details from that case because it was about 20 years ago, but um, ultimately Nissan did do a recall of, of those bags and replace them with, with, bags that were folded differently interesting um and you also scared me to death by saying not every car is tested but hey <laughs> no i mean nitsu has a list of vehicles that it can get to every year with ncap um and then manufacturers as we've discussed before are self-certifying basically saying we promise you we did all these tests um but since there is no you know safety standard for um, there are safety standards for overpowered airbags, and there are some things that were put in place in the um, late 90s when we were seeing children and small female occupants being um, seriously injured and killed by um, overpowered airbags. Um, but there's nothing in there that prevented things like Takata um, and that, that directly addresses airbag folding and, and or directly addresses, you know, minimum performance standards for the detection of crash pulses um, to trigger the airbag system. So all of that stuff is essentially left up to manufacturers to decide. And I, I do not think or have no knowledge of any accelerometers being attached to the heads of these devices that would allow them to really look at the shock associated with the airbag deployment. You know, usually they've got paint on the head of the, uh, the test dummies so that they can record their motion after the fact and you know how they impacted the car and whether they impacted the airbag squarely, that, that sort of thing. But it's a difficult measurement 
to impact that kind of to measure that kind of shock. And I just uh, I just don't believe that they've got any of that kind of advanced instrumentation in the hybrid three ATD that they use for the NHTSA testing. With that answer, ATD, NHTSA, NCAP, welcome to our new weekly segment called The Tao of Fred. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. Where Chief Engineer Fred Perkins will take one of these crazy acronyms we throw out all the time and explain them. This week, as we spin the wheel, the the acronym is ADS. What the hell is ADS, Fred? ADS, that's a great question. Um, it stands for typically automated driving system. And the most commonly used definition of it is the hardware and software that are collectively capable of performing the entire DDT on a sustained basis. Regardless of whether it's limited to a specific ODD, this term is used specifically to describe a level three, four, or five driving automation system so you're cheating lots to unwrap here there was one acronym we wanted ads and now you just threw in like three more all right you got hey you you can't have too many acronyms can you all right so let's 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 unwrap it a little bit so the hardware and software collectively capable of performing the entire dynamic driving task which is what ddt stands for it's not it's not insecticide in this case it's dynamic driving task and what dynamic driving task means is basically the longitudinal, which means fore and aft, and lateral, which means side to side control of a, a vehicle that's being operated on a typical highway. So if you've got you know longitudinal control, fore and aft, braking, accelerating, all those activities that are associated with moving forward and backward, and then the lateral control, which means right and left and steering and avoiding uh other objects and all of the stuff that you do in driving that's what it's supposed to do so it says whether or not it's limited to a specific odd operational design domain now what operational design domain means is the set of geographical and operational constraints that are designed into the vehicle for its operation so for example if you had a vehicle that you can only uh, drive in an automatic vehicle that can only drive in New York City, you would say that the ODD is geographically constrained to, you know, the the geographical extent of New York City. And then if you had a further restraint on it that said you can't operate this thing during a hurricane, that would also go into the ODD, the operational design domain. Um, if you went on further and said, well, we can't operate at night because we're not sure about this. That would be yet another constraint. So all of those constraints are the ODD. So the ADS, Automated Driving System, operates within constraints that are associated with the operational design domain, the geographic and other constraints, environmental, time, temporal, that are associated with the uh, environment in which the vehicle is designed to operate. Is anyone, so, is any car right now have, autom- uh, what does ADS stand for again? Automated driving system? Automated driving system. Okay. Where can not I to be it? confused, not to be confused with driving automation system, which oh, is. Uh, Why would I make which, that confusion? 
So it says, so it refers to this in terms of level three, four, and five vehicles. Okay, so the level three vehicle is one in which the sustained driving operation uh, can be terminated at any time by the machine and you're stuck with the human driver having to take over the operation. So level I've got the system running and I'm taking a nap and then my car says, wake up, we're gonna crash. That's what level yeah. three is? Okay. Yes, with, with an undetermined uh, amount of warning. So that you better wake fun. up quick. Uh, level four is limited by um, the driving system is maybe designed to be used from time to time by a human being, but it's designed so that it will stop safely or it will protect your life if you do nothing. So it may, you know, you may be driving along, taking, sleeping, doing, you know, making another podcast, whatever it is that you like to do, Anthony. I don't know. I don't know you that well. But, um, you know, however that works, level four, when it ceases operation, has an additional logic in it that will stop the vehicle safely or somehow some other way secure the vehicle so that it preserves your life. That's what it's I intended like to do. There are no level four vehicles on the road today. Oh. They don't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, level five vehicle, also there's none on the road today. It's designed to operate completely without a human being and essentially any place that a human being would normally drive a vehicle. So I don't, we, there are no level five vehicles on the road today either. There are some companies that are trying to get permission to operate developmental level five vehicles on the road today. Um, there's some debate about whether or not they've got restricted ODD, operational design domain. But um, anyway, there are no such vehicles on the road today. But let's take this apart a little bit. So automated driving system says the hardware and software are collectively capable of performing the entire task. Well, there are other inputs required for many vehicles. You've got hardware and software, and that's good. You also got firmware. You've got network connectivity. You've got uh, attachments to other inputs. GPS, for example, is not hardware and software in the vehicle. It's an external uh, input that the vehicle might use as it's driving down the road. So the definition that we've got here is fundamentally inadequate because it only looks at some portions of the total technology and total capability that's got to be built into the vehicle in order for it to work. So additional work needs to be done. This is probably, however, the best definition that's around and the one that people generally use. So when you hear ADS, what it means in the minds of the engineers and the developers who are operating on these vehicles is an automated driving system, basically self-driving vehicle, one in which you can take a nap, uh, not pay attention to what's going on in the car, unless and until alerted by the operating system in the vehicle that you as a human being need to take over. Okay, I think I have a better understanding of it. And so this, you know, past couple of days ago when I let my car drive itself through the state of Rhode Island because it's using automated cruise control, that was not ADS. That was just dumb. Michael's Well, opinion. that was ADAS. Um, and it, 
No. You know, it works to the extent that you don't get complacent and think it's actually going to drive your car. Well, I, I kind of push it to the limit. I just kind of like put weight on the steering wheel, not actual weights, just kind of, you know, just rested my arms on it and let it drive. But the funny thing is then it would complain about its own driving, but like you're getting too close to the edge of the lane. And I'm like, you're driving the car, not me. But then I say that out loud. My wife's like, what did you say? <laughs> nothing. Uh, uh, nothing. Go back to sleep. <laughs> okay, so you well, say there's – sorry. The distinction gets lost on a lot of people, and, and, and it causes a lot of confusion. So, you know, where is the line between an ADAS and an ADS? A lot of people with Teslas think they've crossed that line. They have an ADS. But if you read the fine print on the Tesla website and their agreements, it says, no, you're you're in control. You're the human being. You must always be attentive to the driving task. Now, if it says you must always be attentive to the driving task, implicitly, it is an ADAS. Okay. If it if 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 at some future point they would they were to say, um, you do no longer you no longer need to be immediately attentive to or continuously attentive to the driving task that probably pushes you over into level three but it doesn't really matter a lot because there's no governmental definition of when a vehicle is a level three or a level four it's totally up to the uh, manufacturer to determine when it's a level three when it's a level four when it's a level five and there's there's really no uh no law yet that determines what kind of responsibility the manufacturer needs to have if they consider their car to be a level three or four car. Or right, Mike, you got any more background on that? No, that's, I mean, there's, there's literally nothing there. So, I mean, it, there's, and it doesn't really matter, I guess, to one extent, whether they categorize, categorize it by level. Um, I guess one of our biggest objections to some of the things Tesla's been doing is calling things, self-driving calling things autopilot which make it seem like the vehicle has an ads when in fact those cars only have crash avoidance adas features and the um self-driving part of that is is still remains highly in question so if someone's marketing an ADAS system as an ads system would that make them an ass ah who's from out of town all right. So so we're talking about there's there's no current system with an ADS, no self-driving cars, but there's an article this week, we got a couple ones where GM Cruise has a recall and GM Cruise is GM's robo taxi system where um they they had authorization starting in June 2nd to operate robo taxis in San Francisco. Um and you know it it's they're limited where they want to go um, when there's no heavy rain, heavy fog, heavy smoke, hail, sleet, snow. Um, so I, I don't know when they drive in San Francisco. Um, you know, there's a couple of minutes a day they can drive. But that's what you're I, saying. I think they only drive at night in, in San Francisco as right. well. From 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Um, right. And only on select streets. So... Uh, so reading this story, um, their robo taxi was involved in a crash, um, right. and and Michael, you gave us more information on this, but it really seems like the the main fault here was that the robo taxi was not designed to operate against human drivers who suck. Um, that's <laughs> the the impression I get from the story is they came to an intersection, they wanted to make a left, 
someone on the opposite side of the street was in the right turn only lane and then they decided at the last second hey let's switch and go forward no it's human we've all dealt with that and um but but give us some more information here yeah and it looked like the vehicle the the other vehicles at fault this happened i believe the day after they got certified in san francisco um do you think it was a competitor i do not believe it was a competitor it was just another crazy speeding human um but the the issue here i think for us was that GM did make a determination that that its vehicle had some issue there because they put in a software update that modified the performance characteristics of the vehicles after that. Um, and they were in contact with NHTSA this whole time because they, you know, this is an area where NHTSA is standing general order on, on um, ADAFs and ADS crash data comes into play. They, NHTSA received immediate notification of the incident. And we're in discussion with GM as they um, implemented the solution and also encouraged GM, um, it seems pretty strongly, to um, make, make this a recall and put it out for the sake of transparency, even though in this case there aren't any owners that you would notify like a traditional recall. Um, this is what we think needs to happen with any time a manufacturer modifies a vehicle carrying passengers in America, anytime they modify the safety or performance characteristics of that vehicle, there needs to be some type of notification. Um, otherwise, we think there will be some, you know, some pretty serious cover-ups of defects based on what we've seen and how we've seen the industry behave over the previous 50 years. So, Fred, is this a level four car? Do you want to retract your previous this statement? Is, no, this is, this is, well, okay, getting into the the inside baseball part of it a little bit. Um, it's a level five car, except that it has a very well-defined operational design domain. So, you know, whether or not something that's designed for level five with an operational design domain is level four or something else, it's not clear. It's something that that uh, we engineers and similar nerds will argue about from time to time. But as far as its its functional design is concerned, if you were to open up the operational design domain to the entire world, then it would be a level five car. So uh, you know, I, and I think part of the problem here may just be that it was designed by engineers rather than people who are sports fans because essentially what happened in this collision <laughs> is there was a head fake by the oncoming vehicle and uh, the, the machine was not designed to compensate for head fakes. So uh, I don't know. That's I think that's part of the problem that too many engineers are involved and too few humanists. Excellent. So similar to this is uh, Waymo, is uh, which is Google's um, driverless taxi cabs. They're taking on more passengers in the Phoenix area. Uh, it's fully driverless. Uh, you have to sign an NDA. Um, they've removed the NDA in some areas, I guess. Um, and it's, you know, mapped out similar to only San Francisco. There's only certain areas of Phoenix and surrounding areas, specific tr streets. Um, but they've run into problems where, like, a van got stuck at an intersection in Chandler, uh, Chandler, Arizona, and they had to send a, quote-unquote, roadside assistance team which I assume just just you know send Brad the intern to move the car. Um, so what what's happening out in in Arizona here? 
what's going on in Arizona is that they're going downtown. Um, they've previously had their vehicles geofenced kind of out in the suburbs. And um, although downtown Phoenix probably doesn't approximate downtown um, New York City or some of our other more bustling downtowns, it's a little more spread out and planned, I believe, than a lot of other uh, Amer- older cities in America. Um it's 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 a significant step in some ways because you're going to be dealing with a lot more pedestrian traffic, a lot more unpredictability, um, and it's you know the, the urban test environment environment seems like it would be one of the you know it's one of the more critical things that that ADS manufacturers get correct because of the high uh, rate of pedestrian deaths we're seeing on the roads and um, other problems we see in our cities. So who's actually requesting these cars? That's what I want to know, especially in San Francisco. You, they, the GM Cruise only runs from 10 p.m. at night to 6 a.m. So you're hailing a cab. Odds are you're drunk. And then you're going to get into a cab and there's no one behind the wheel. It, it, I think this is going to cause an uptick in people sending themselves to the psychiatric ward. Like, who? How? why would you request a driverless car? I mean, that actually sounds kind of fun to me in a way, you know, having a, having a few and hopping in a driverless car. I mean, that would probably ease my fears enough to get in one. It's kind of like people have a few drinks at the airport bar before they get on a plane. <laughs> That's a, wait, there's a pilot in that plane though, right? Or not? A, For now. Pilot. Oh, yeah. no. Well, like, why would you, I mean, because you get into a cab now and, who, what, if there's no driver, who do you yell up for going the wrong way or for taking a route you don't like? Like, no, make a left here. We keep going straight. That goes past my ex's house. Come on. Tur- like, what, how do you, how do you do this? Why? Well, it brings up an interesting point, actually. If you had voice controls in the vehicle, then how does the vehicle know who's in charge? If you've got, like, you know, consider a, a car full of teenagers and one, one of them wants to go to the beach. The other one wants to go to the McDonald's, and the third, the third wants to go to high school. No, no, <laughs> wait, that would never happen. So, but you know, seriously, if if you've got conflicting commands, um, how does the vehicle know who's in charge and which way to go? And uh, you know, I I, I wonder how the, these automated driving systems right now under test authorize the particular person who is actually a, uh, in command of the operation of the vehicle. How do they know that there aren't conflicting commands and how do they know they're not going to end up in the wrong place? There's, you know, this, I don't know, that's a real problem for me. But you asked who would do this first and you said it was probably drunks and I think there's some causality there. People who've had a lot of drinks do things that other people might not. There are a lot of people who jump out of airplanes for fun, you know. I, some people are just thrill seekers. <laughs> I guess. Um, okay. <laughs> All right. Where were we? So um, related to this, Europe is uh, looking at building a post-car future. So, you know, we're taking taxi drivers out of a job. Now we're taking driverless cars out of a job. Um, what What's going on in Europe? You know, there's a lot of kind of a... When you, when you start looking at EVs and some of the things that have gone on in America recently, there's a lot of push towards, you know, EVs have this limited range. Um, and it seems like you're, they're actually looking at, at, at regulations in Europe to kind of reduce the 
human range that is required to uh, for us to to walk and to access the things we need. They were they were looking at putting in place regulations to to um, mandate certain um, distances between um, a lot of their you know the 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 things that humans need to use cars to get to every day in order to remove the vehicles from the road. Um, there was also another story this week about, you know, California incentivizing a lot of low income folks um, at the rate of a thousand dollars a year not to own a car and to take mass transit um, and even providing an extra fifteen hundred dollar benefit to folks up to fifteen hundred dollars for folks who um, retire their vehicle instead of selling it to someone else to, to take it off the road. Um, so there's 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 a movement afoot and you know there's a lot of support for these type of movements from some of the, the bicyclist groups and others but you know generally um for congestion and environmental reasons as well less cars on the road is a good thing whether they're electric or gas powered so um it's an interesting subject um you know we continue to see americans buy vehicle gas vehicles at a rate of about 95 percent 90 percent over electric um, while states are, you know, banning the sale of, of gas-powered vehicles in those states in a matter of a uh, decade or less, uh, or just over a decade in some cases, like in California. Um, so there's going to be some sort of reckoning in the next 10 to 15 years um, as to how we, how we continue to move around in America. Is this EV boon going to take over are they going to be a long-term solution or are we going to have to continue to rely on fossil fuel vehicles or some type of change to our infrastructure like europe's contemplating um to to reduce the number of cars on the road i think you know you, you've got to also consider the fact that electric vehicles um even if they're better in terms of environmental discharges compared to internal combustion engine vehicles, the benefits will be marginal in most cases. Um, if you've got a, a if you've got a solar sources for the electricity you're using to recharge the vehicles, then you can expect them to be something like you know twenty five to thirty percent less polluting over their lifetime than an internal combustion engine vehicle. But if you don't have that source, then there's really very small gain over the lifetime of the vehicle associated with electric propulsion. So if if you really want to reduce the amount of pollution that is associated with transportation, you simply got to get people out of their cars. Another initiative, though, another uh, impulse towards that reduction in vehicles in Europe is that if you take a 5,000-foot view of a city, you'll find that something like 15 to 20% of the city is dedicated to vehicles. You've got roads, you've got parking garages, um, you've got shopping centers, you know, there's just a huge amount of real estate that's associated and dedicated to uh, vehicles. And if you could reduce the number of vehicles on the road, you could reuse some of this very valuable real estate for other purposes. So that's another uh, another impetus towards getting people out of the vehicles in the cities and, you know, uh, reusing some of that real estate, that valuable real estate for perhaps more productive purposes than just watching cars go by. I don't support your communist left-wing propaganda. If it's good for General Motors, it's good for America, right? 
Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. That's good. Walk back in line. Well, in 15 years, are people still going to be buying cars or is it going to be I'm calling up my GM Cruise Waymo Tesla box? In 15 years, people are still going to live in the country where they're not going to have the Cruise and Waymo operating. I mean, maybe in... In cities. I just don't know if you can ever make... AVs at the cost they're actually going to be really practical in rural areas. Um, that's probably, you know, I, maybe my grandchildren will see that. I'm, I'm not expecting that anytime soon. What do you think, Fred? I don't think in 15 years there'll be a shortage of uh, people owning cars and buying cars. It's, it's just going to take a long time to develop an alternative system for cars. Uh, I just bought my car two years ago, and I'm expecting it to still be running in another 13 years. So, uh, you know, if the cars, it's interesting. The cars got so much better over my lifetime that people no longer turn them over at anything like the rate. When I was a kid, people would buy new cars every two or three years because <clears throat> the old ones are rusting out and falling apart. Now it's unusual to see somebody buy new cars that quickly in fact that's very typical for cars to be still on the road after 10 or 15 years this brings up other issues associated with the long-term life of the safety systems in the cars but that's a subject for another discussion i guess right all right is it uh i think this has brought us to listener mail and listener mail this week is from me and it's related to motorcycles because i have a teenager who's trying to kill us um are motorcycles crash tested? There no. are some safety standards for motorcycles, um, but there, you know, you really can't crash test them in the same way as you would a car. I'm not even, you know, I, I we, we have not looked at motorcycles a lot at the center um, other than some of the bad outcomes, but I've seen a lot of things like um, airbags, for motorcyclists, these suits they wear that seems yeah, like they, they would be really protective in certain collisions. I mean, the you know the air the crashing in a motorcycle happens from so many different directions, and you know the compatibility of, of other vehicles now you know is all over the place from giants to small vehicles. I, I don't even know if you can effectively crash test the motorcycle um but you know that's something i never thought about fred do you have any ideas on that oh well i you know (laughs) a human being is basically a bag of salt water with a couple of sticks in it and when that bag of salt water is is you know exposed to a high velocity impact it's it's a lot like a giant water balloon um you know there's there's no two ways around that so i don't think there's any real prospect for for improvement of passenger or operator safety for um, motorcycles by investing in crash testing. I just I don't see where that return investment would be. So I I just can't see it. You know, uh, the water balloons are water balloons, and they're going to do what what water balloons do. All right. So how are these things sold? Like, you know, cars have to meet some sort of base minimum crash testing. 
Well, they have they they meet this federal standard. So the 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 federal standards um, it doesn't specify um, that you have to crash test. I mean, theoretically, you could create a model of your vehicle and simulate crash tests and say that works. We're going to certify it. Now you're responsible if that doesn't work out and your your simulation wasn't um, accurate, but motorcycles have to meet you know a, a variety of standards before they can be sold they've got the usual ones like brakes and lamps and rear view mirrors and brake fluids and tires and some of the other things and and they're actually i believe um their standards for the glass on motorcycles and also for their controls so um and you'll also see NHTSA get involved on motorbike motorcycle helmet safety as well because there's been a lot of um counterfeit and junk helmets coming over from overseas um that they've been keeping a close eye on all right you've convinced me get a motorcycle kid <laughs> all right i think with that we've wrapped up another episode in the weekly series called the center for auto safety podcast visit www.autosafety.org and donate, subscribe, become a member, tell all of your friends. Um, all right. Goodbye from me here, and I'm sure these gentlemen will say goodbye as well. Goodbye, happy and dedicated listeners. Thank you. <laughs> Have a good week, everybody. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.